Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Today's guest is Megan Shepard, author of the Madman's Daughter Trilogy, the Cage Trilogy, the Secret Horses of Briar Hill, and the Grim Lovelies. Megan joined me today to talk about her process and how the spark of an idea can sometimes get lost during the execution. The greatest treasure, a most dangerous magic. Growing up with a traveling circus, Genevieve Flannery is accustomed to a life most teenagers could never imagine. But when her mother leaves behind a dangerous, magical legacy, it threatens to unravel everything and everyone Genevieve holds dear. Slight by Jennifer Summersby. I always ask my guests about the query journey. So if you could talk a little bit about how you landed your agent, listeners always find that helpful. I'm one of those weird people that actually really enjoyed querying. Not the querying part, not the horrible rejection part, but the writing of queries. I found it really reassuring because it felt like I was still doing work without actually having to write. So I guess it was all just one big procrastination method. Love reading those websites like Query Shark, where they would, you know, go over queries and what works and what didn't. And it was a whole different part of my brain than the creative writing part. When I first started writing seriously, I had learned just enough to know that my writing was not very good. I wrote for about three or four years and had three full different books. They were done, but I just didn't even bother to query them because I knew that they were just practice books as much as I loved them. I'm not going to have a lot of fans for saying this, but I didn't get a lot of rejections But that's just because I never really queried anything. If I queried those early books, I would have a stack of thousands of rejections. So I didn't really query very much at all until I had written what was my fourth full manuscript, which was The Madman's Daughter, that ended up being my debut book to be published. And that was the first one I felt like, okay, this one is worth going through the grueling, horrible, depressing process of querying and getting rejected. I can do it for this book because I think it might have a chance. And I was taking a writing class at the time, and that teacher gave me a lot of encouragement. I kind of needed a little bit of external validation to actually query that one. And I had a list of dream agents and newer agents and kind of a whole mix of people I was interested in working with. But one of those was a North Carolina, I'm in North Carolina, and it was a North Carolina local agent named Josh Adams of Adams Literary. It's a boutique agency with his wife, Tracy. Because they're local, I had seen them speaking at some different SCBWI conferences, knew them and liked them. And I I really liked that there was a a very capable agency that wasn't based in New York. Queried to them just to kind of see what would happen. Got a call, I think, the next day from Josh. He'd read the whole book, wanted to talk pretty much offered representation, I think within like two days. All this was happening while I was working at my former day job. And so it was a lot of hiding in my office, pretending to be on a very important conference call when I was actually talking to an agent or like screaming or whatever in excitement. I signed with him. And two weeks later, 
we had a three book deal and international deals and a film deal. My mind was completely blown. But of course, that was after many years of absolutely nothing happening. Of course, of course. So you said that you enjoy writing queries, which you're right. Not many people are going to say that. That is something that I have learned to enjoy because I like to practice that particular type of writing because it is different from the creative muscles and it's a piece of marketing and I like to keep those fresh. So I write my own flap copy for my books, which is kind of like writing a query. I try to keep myself fresh in that manner. So for these three manuscripts that you wrote before the man, man's daughter, even though you didn't query them, did you ever practice writing queries for them just to get that experience? I did. Yes. I think I did query them a little bit. I even got like a full request from my very first manuscript, like the first person I ever queried, and I was so excited. But of course, that query letter didn't come until like three years after I had submitted it. By then, I was published with a different book. But I did practice querying those. And I think I was always in kind of like a nerdy way, really good at school growing up. <laughs> I knew what the teacher wanted. I knew how to do assignments. And it just feels much less threatening to me than mm. a 400-page book that's just entirely up to you to create. I guess in a weird way, querying is sort of my comfort zone. But that's why I try to write creatively because it's not in my comfort zone. And I think that's what I need. I need to get out of my comfort zone. I agree. It's kind of hard to manage that end where you are thinking, this is what I know I'm good at. This is what I know I need to get better at. And then making yourself do the thing you know you need to get better at. That's a particular skill. I know. That's why there's so much procrastination. Mm -hmm. When I'm trying to draft something, I always say my house is cleanest. I have probably defrosted the freezer and cleaned inside the oven. For me, it's gardening. Suddenly, I have to have a giant strawberry patch. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'll get to my edit sometime. But like, obviously, these strawberry plants are very essential in this moment. Yeah, I'm canning tomato soup today. That's what I'm doing. A lot of my listeners are aspiring writers, and they're interested in process. So how do you go from an idea to a novel, those 400 pages you were talking about that are so daunting? Everyone always says that every book is different, Mm -hmm. but that's really true. Every book I've done has not had the same process Mm -hmm. from idea to finished product. Right now I'm writing what will hopefully be my 10th book. I've kind of developed a few strategies. My books start with a premise. Some people's books start with a character or a plot, but mine are a premise. I always have a few initial images or little blips and ideas that come off of that, like characters or certain scenes or jokes or dialogues. And I'll just take a couple weeks to write all that down. All the big fun things that get me excited about the idea. I try to write those down or print out pictures or something and put them up on my wall because it's so easy to lose the thread of what initially got you interested in the idea. Mm-hmm. When, you know, once you get deep into it, you can just get buried in all the minutia and it can start to veer off into something different. And for me, it's really important to remember this is my touchstone, you know, this scene or this character. And, and I want to keep tying it back to that. Once I brainstorm those ideas, then I'll start to stitch it together into something that resembles an outline write up some character profiles. I'm really like a plotting nerd. I love all the different plotting charts and graphs and everything. I've got like maybe six six different potential plot 
systems that I use. And it kind of depends on what book I'm writing. I don't always use the same one. And so I'll use that as sort of a framework, write out a really, really rough outline. When I actually start the writing, for me, it's all about capturing the right tone. So I'm not as concerned with nailing the prose. It's more like it's got to have the right tone. And that can take a little bit of work. Probably most books that I end up abandoning are because I couldn't get the right tone. Never clicked. Then I will do the first draft and I try to do that pretty fast because I have a terrible memory. If I don't write it all fast, then it's just going to flitter away into another world. Mm -hmm. I will write a first draft in anywhere between three to five months. Mm -hmm. I did write one first draft in six days once. Um, Then I went on to edit that book for two years. Ah, So that's what I get for thinking I can write a book that quickly. That first draft is really, really pretty bad just like a long outline. Mm -hmm. And so then I just go back chapter by chapter and just polish and polish and polish, rewrite every chapter probably six or seven times Wow! before I even send it to critique partners. I've got a few critique partners that I always use. Sometimes we'll look for specialty readers if it's about a certain subject that I'm not as familiar with, or if I know characters, maybe not my strengths, I'll send it to someone who I know is really good at writing characters. Mm -hmm. Send it to the agent, send it to the editor. Pretty much just panic. <laughs> Check refresh my email just constantly for weeks until I hear back. So the last step is panic. Well, that's really like every other step is also panic. <laughs> for sure. So it sounds like you do quite a bit of uh, pre-writing. Yeah, I would even say my first draft. I would never show it to anyone. Mm-hmm. It probably wouldn't even make any sense to anyone else. My first drafts are just trying to get a very vague sense of, okay, I want action here. I want explanations and world building here. And, oh, let's put a joke in here. And I'll just kind of put a placeholder. And it's always something really terrible. And I have to go back and rewrite it many times. Mm -hmm. But I like to have that map down first before I actually go back and try to clean it up and have it make sense and be pretty. Coming up, writing trilogies versus standalones and why dark stories appeal to us. Emma has always wanted something different for her life, and when her parents move them to Fort Morgan, Colorado, her life takes a turn for the unexpected. There, she meets Robert and reunites with an old friend, and will have to decide between a new love or an old flame. Robert is a daring vampire, and Josh, a charismatic guy. Both will fight for her love, but only one will win. Read Midnight by Gianna Armas. So you were talking about that initial spark and how that initial spark of your idea can sometimes get lost or fade a little bit as you're working on the manuscript itself. And that's very true. You'll find sometimes that that spark that spun everything around it, the heat from that spark lessens the farther away from it that you move. And I like your idea of taking pictures or things that might remind you of what it was that was your initial concept, kind of like an inspiration board. Any other tips like that for reclaiming that initial idea when you're starting to sputter out? That's why it's so important when you first have the idea to open up a Word document or something and just jot down your idea, what gets you excited about it. Mm -hmm. You know, It doesn't have to be a whole board with pictures and everything, but even just when you're deep into edits and had a lot of critique partners give you advice and that steered the book one way. And then your editor maybe wants you to do round after round of edits that's pulling the book in a different direction. It's hard to even remember what your initial love of the book was to be able to go back and 
put yourself back in that place. Even if you could go back to the actual physical place you were in when you had that idea, try to remember those initial feelings you had. You've got to have that, especially as you bring other people into the picture, like critique partners or editors. You've got to still have a way for the book to be yours Mm -hmm. and be able to listen to other people's feedback, but not be swayed by it if it doesn't fit into your vision. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. I've talked before on the podcast about my fantasy series, Given to the Sea is the first book, Given to the Earth is the second. And I had an idea way back in college, like 20 years ago, I had this scene that occurred to me and it was something that I knew was from a fantasy novel. And I understood these two characters and the reason why they were in this room and why this scene was happening. But that's all I had was that one scene, but it was very strong. And I wrote it down 20 years later, kind of a barrage of different things that I was reading about and all these complex different elements came together. And I thought, you know, I think if I threw all this together, I could actually get a novel. And I actually ended up with two novels. But what I like to tell people is that initial scene, that spark takes place three quarters of the way through the second book. That particular scene, I wrote 175,000 words to get to the scene that actually started the series in my head. There's always scenes that most writers I know are excited to write. They're the ones that they're like, I cannot wait to get to this scene. I have this benchmark that I know is so exciting. And some people like to write those first, like to make sure they're not going to lose it, to get it down. That's their spark. And I totally understand that. But for me... I wait until it's chronologically time for that scene because Mm -hmm. it's like eating dessert first. I'm not going to write that scene until I've done the work that needed to be done for me to get to it. And I'm glad that I write that way because if I didn't, I probably would have never written my fantasy series at all. Well, I'm the same way, except I have to write chronologically more just because I've tried that jumping ahead and writing the scenes that I'm excited to write. But then it just no longer makes sense. Right. <laughs> then once I end up actually getting to that scene, I have to throw it out anyway. Mm-hmm. And I hate throwing out words. I don't know. It just makes more sense for me to go straight through. Yeah, me too. Chronologically, I know plenty of writers that jump around. And I'm like, dude, no way. I am so bad with timelines anyway. My copy editors pull their freaking hair out because they make a date. You know, we're going to go to the movies on Monday. And then they go to the movies, but I didn't send them to school that day. And the copy editor is like, but it's, it's Monday. They, they needed to go to school. And I'm like, no, it does, who cares? They're like, fine, it's Saturday. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. And they're like, no, it really matters. Inevitably, you end up having to rewrite like whole sections of the book yeah. just because you use the word Monday, Monday and they should be at school. Exactly. And I'm just <laughs> like, oh, my God. I actually now, when I'm drafting, I'm very specific in being non-specific. When I'm drafting, I'll be like, hey, you know, hey, do you want to go to the movies sometime? Yeah, sometime. <laughs> Did you do that? Because <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not rewriting everything to make sure that the school week plays out. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. So another thing you talked about that I thought was interesting was finding the tone for each book or the voice for each book. And that's something that I think can be really difficult for beginning writers to learn voice and tone. Something else that is even more complicated, each book has its own tone, its own voice, yet all of them tie together to fit underneath your author voice, your author brand, your author tone. Is that something you're consciously thinking about when you're working 
on an individual product? Or are you confident enough that your own style, your own voice is going to make each book have its own flavor, yet still obviously be part of the Megan Shepherd soup? It's not something I worry about necessarily. I worry about it more at the beginning of my career when I was starting to write multiple books and especially books for different age ranges and how would that work and would they feel like they were written by different people and did I need a pen name even for some of them because they were so different. But what cured me of that worry was reading other people's books, books by people like Victoria Schwab or even yourself. I mean, people who write across genres and across age ranges. And I still absolutely see, you know, oh, this is a Mindy McGinnis book, or this is a Victoria Schwab book. So that's shown me that it's inevitably something about you, the themes that you keep going back to, your voice, your style, it's always going to be there. You've published two trilogies and two standalones. Do you approach books differently when they're in a series? And do you have a preference to writing a series versus standalones? I like things about both. I would say my preference is to write standalones. But then inevitably, when I get to the end of that standalone, I realize, well, I don't know how to wrap this up. I want to keep writing in this world. So I'm going to turn this into a (laughs) duology or a trilogy. I wrote two trilogies back to back. And I will say that did give me a bit of fatigue. In a way, I really Mm -hmm. liked the challenge of bringing something new to every single book. You can't help but sort of uncover things that I didn't even know about the characters or about the world. So that's certainly part of the joy in writing trilogies. But man, sometimes you hit that third book and I'm ready to move on. I'm not a huge fan of things that drag on and on. Like I say, I like writing query letters, like short things, and I like writing very quickly. And then I just love that satisfaction of having a project done. When it's a trilogy or a sequel, you're kind of like, okay, it's done, but now I've got to figure out all the problems with the second book or the third book. I will say, With Grim Lovelies, which is my book that comes out in October, it's actually a duology. And Mm -hmm. I've just finished writing the sequel. And this is the first time that I've written about a fantasy world, although it's set in the real world in Paris, but there's magic, that I just really love the world. And so this is a two-book series, but I could certainly see writing novellas or companion novels or sequels or something just playing around with this world and the different magical orders in the world and the different rules of magic. It's just fun. Some of my other books Mm -hmm. have been a bit heavy and this one has some darkness, but it's a bit more light and fun and funny. That's been a real pleasure to do. When you're working with those trilogies and duologies, they can get your mind a little bogged down at times and you need a break. You need to think about something else. You need to think about other people. It can Mm -hmm. be very difficult to keep those characters interesting, even to you. I think that can be really hard to push through and to step back from your own work and try to think about it as a reader. I think that's always difficult when you're the author and when you're dealing with longer material like that, and you have to worry about a saggy middle. I think one of the big challenges I find is ending the first one so that it doesn't have a cliffhanger because people, I don't think, appreciate those. Yes. (laughs) But making it interesting enough that they're going to move on to the second. You got to tie up most things, but not everything. And then in the second one, finding the right entry point to bring the readers back into the world and to remind everyone where we are and who is doing what. My other issue with trilogies is that I always put a plot point in the first book that's like, oh, so-and-so is keeping a secret. And I have no idea Mm -hmm. what the secret is. 
you know, <laughs> but then at some point in book two or three, I have to figure it out. And so it's like I open all these threads and mysteries in the first book. And I'm sure readers think I know what happens, but I have no idea what happens. What's the big twist that's coming <laughs> that you've been promoting? And I'm like, I don't know. You've M. Night Shyamalan yourself. <laughs> exactly. That is definitely a danger when you're writing those longer books in the longer series. Something else I find that happens that I actually enjoy is when people find things in your work or they think you did something really, really smart that you totally did not do on purpose. I had a reader tell me that Alex's name in the female of the species is very close to or taken from one of the Furies from Greek mythology. Huh. And they were like, I just thought that was so amazing that you did that. And it's so perfect. And it fits so awesome. And I love the nod. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> That's usually when I'm like, absolutely. It was so brilliant. <laughs> so glad you picked up on that, that I did that and you realized it. Well, I remember being back in high school English class and we would have to dissect poetry and authorial mm-hmm. intent. I always thought this is just BS. I mean, I don't think right. that these authors meant all this symbolism. I think they were just writing about the moon or something. And uh, <laughs> you know, as an author, I can verify, yes. We're not really putting in all that symbolism. It's just natural. And I think it's great that readers bring those Mm -hmm. interpretations to it. That's what critical reading is all about. But it is funny sometimes. There have been like little nods to things that I have specifically put in that no one has ever noticed. If people want to give me credit for things I didn't do, I'm just going to take it. In the Cage series, I put little Easter eggs because the Cage series is sort of a human zoo, like where aliens have taken human kids Mm -hmm. and put them in like a human zoo enclosure. And that's an idea that's been done before in some classic sci-fi like Star Trek and Planet of the Apes. And all those different classic stories that have human zoos, I put Easter eggs in the book. And no one has picked up on a single one of those. You mentioned before you talked about the cage and, of course, the Mad Man's daughter, which is a reimagining of the island of Dr. Moreau. So you do tend to work sometimes with darker material. And what draws you? And I'm asking you this because people ask me this all the time and I don't have a good answer. So I'm going to see if you do and then I'm going to use yours. What draws you to those types of stories and why do you think they're necessary? That is a really good question and kind of a hard question to pinpoint because most people who know me are surprised when they read my books. Like I think I tend to be a pretty cheerful person. I have a really very happy life. I live on a farm and we have chickens and bees and lots of animals and I have a little baby and like, it's a wonderful life. So I kind of feel like what is drawing me to all of this dark stuff? I think it might be knowing that there is all this dark stuff out there in the world. Maybe some of it I've experienced and a lot of it I haven't experienced, but I'm just sort of curious about connecting my own life to other people's experiences and other people's challenges and and some of the dark things that have happened, you know, they're happening in other countries, they're happening in our country, that are happening throughout history, that could be happening in the future. Trying to see beyond my own experience to sort of understand those darker aspects of the world. And I also think that when it comes to dark stories, I think it's a Batman quote, the brighter the picture, the darker the negative. I kind of think about it as the reverse. The darker the story or the world, the brighter the hope. I do write dark stories, and that's the kind of story I like to read as well. But it's not like I'm in it for the darkness. Like I'm mm-hmm. in it because I want to see people fighting against that. And I want to see mm-hmm. people 
not taking the easy way out and not giving up. What would people do in that situation? Like, how would you be a hero? I guess it's sort of for me seeing all the good qualities and the values that can come out of a dark world. I like that answer. And I'll probably steal that from you when people... (laughs) You're welcome to steal it. It's a great answer. And I too get the question often. And what I answer, and this is also true, is that this is how my mind operates. This is how I am thinking most of the time. And much like you, people that know me in real life and that have known me my whole life are actually very... I think disturbed is probably the right word to use when they read my work because they're like, Mindy, you don't seem like this is what's going on inside of your head. My husband is quite an optimist and he calls me a pessimist, but I feel like I'm just a realist. For me, if I don't acknowledge the darker stuff, then there's no balance. I agree. And I tell people when I get the question, as I said, that's just where my mind goes naturally. If I'm at a conference or if I'm in a room where there's a panel, it's like I tell people, you know, when I came in here, I made a note of where the exits are in case this room catches on fire. I'm always thinking worst case scenario. I could never write a rom-com. I could never write a cute love story because I don't think about cute love stories. No one ever asks people who write happy books, how do you work with happy material all the time? (laughs) That's true. That's true. I think those are the real psychopaths. I would love to have someone ask a famous romance author who's going through a divorce. How are you going to do this? (laughs) But, you know, that shows me that readers are also drawn to dark stuff. The fact that they're thinking about what we're thinking about betrays their own dark curiosity. And I always tell people, when you drive past a car crash, you look. You can't tell me you don't. Yep. It's human nature. Absolutely. It's kind of a a self-preservation thing to try to understand danger and, and, you know, be warned by things you read and things you see. I've read studies that say when you look at that car crash, when you read that murder story, you're doing it because you're glad it wasn't you. Mm. A reminder, you're alive. That didn't happen to you. I feel like we're really touching on something important here. Vicariously experiencing, let's say, violence or something dark through a book in some ways probably can prepare you for the real world, maybe protect you from things in the future that otherwise you may have skipped through life happily thinking, oh, this could never happen to me. And empathizing with other people because, I mean, even if you have lived a really charmed life, not everyone in the world has. And, you know, you do need to be able to understand what that's like for other people. Absolutely. I agree. I love to write dark stuff. I'm going to continue to write dark stuff. Last question. What are you working on now? And where can people find you online? I am working on the sequel to Grim Lovelies. The title has not been announced yet. The first book is set in Paris, mostly. And this one also has a little bit of a glittering magical Paris. But then there's also quite a bit takes place in the Black Forest area of Germany. And then also London, we get to see London, something terrible has happened to the city. So it was really fun to go beyond the Paris setting and go to some other areas in Europe that I have been to and really loved. You can find me at my website, meganshepherd.com. I am on Instagram at at meganshepherdauthor and Facebook at backslash meganshepherdauthor. And Twitter is megan underscore shepherd.
Rider Rider Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Rider Rider Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>